Welcome, everyone. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I watched a show. This week, we are covering The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. We're surprised. We are so surprised that we are we are covering this right now, and it is still number one. Yeah. The Queen's Gambit. If you don't know anything about it, it's uh, about an orphan at nine. She discovers the game of chess in an orphanage and becomes a huge child star in the sixties. In the sixties, but also forms a, a bit of a, an addiction uh, along with that stardom. And the big question that everybody had with it is where did this come from what who was this a memoir or what is the whole thing with this but it's yes, all there's, fake. there's it's a, a, fiction. a lot of aura around is how how real is this was she real was is this character uh, actually a, a real person Beth Harmon people seem to be really taken with this character and so we're gonna try to give you some context here of what is this thing where did it come from <laughs> uh, what about it is true what about it is made up and why is it so big now it is yeah. huge it is absolutely wild wild so we'll start with the film, the creative team, Scott Frank, wrote and directed all of it, which is crazy for a TV show miniseries format that the same person would be directing and writing every single episode. Typically, you have a showrunner who has a, a writer's room and, and a writer or two writers will tackle each script at a time. And they interconnect and they all talk to each other, but you have different people kind of handing off the writer's job and the directing job yeah. um, for episode to episode. So to have a, a main helmer who is really beginning to end, that is really rare. And I think that is one of the aspects that is really paying out in spades here because it's being regarded as one of the most well-crafted series that Netflix or any streaming service has put forth mm -hmm. yet because it is incredibly cohesive in the way that it's told. I would attribute that because it has, you know, one creative force really, mm -hmm. really driving it. The focal point of the whole thing is chess. And so the chess sequences have to be true to life or at least resembling something close to that or it's going to right. get so much that, scrutiny so much of the game here i mean it's how do you how do you how do you yeah. make chess exciting how do you take something so internal i mean honestly if you're just watching it and you're not the one playing how do you take something so banal almost and make uh -uh. it make it cutting edge really tracking what's going on because i don't play like an yeah. action movie i don't play chess but the people that do it's like it is so exciting and but it's all in your mind right and, and, how do and, you and it's that? hard to unless you unless you were like a, like if you're the person doing it it's it's, it's incredible but it's mm -hmm. hard to be a part and watch it like be an audience member yeah for it <laughs> so there's a guy bruce pandolfini who also interestingly consulted on the novel which came out in 83 we'll get to that at the end but he was used as the consultant for the entire series. He was the guy who was, really? and he is world renowned as like the master chess teacher. He's probably oh, seen man. the most chess matches of any living human being. Oh, he coached all, you know, a lot of the great now grandmasters. That's his whole thing. But he consulted on the novel and is credited with giving the title of the thing, the queen's gambit, wow. Walter Tevis, who was the, the author. Yeah, that's he got it from this guy. The whole idea of the opening move, which you sacrifice a piece in order to get a positive position. That's what essentially the Queen's Gambit is. Mm. Don't slay me if you know chess, actually. And it's more complicated <laughs> than that. But that. Yeah, I'm not a big uh, chess man myself. Yeah. <laughs> Thematically, that's what it encompasses as well. So it's a great title. And then just the rest of the creative team, William Horberg was an executive producer who has been tracking with this project for a while. He was one of the producers for Searching for Bobby Fischer, which is a notable chess movie, which isn't about Bobby Fischer, but it follows Josh Waitskin, who is the new prodigy, who oh, would be kind of like the next 
Bobby Fischer. And that's how this executive producer, that's how he met Bruce Pandolfini, who then works on this because he was working with him on that, okay. in that documentary. He met him there. And yeah. then Bruce knows Gary Kasparov, the Russian grandmaster, who oh, is wow. very much closely related in his own life because he was a former child prodigy, a 10-year-old genius who right. was taken out of regular life. He also knows about the USSR because that's when he was playing. Right. Right, he had right, gone right. to tournaments, all that stuff. So he was also involved in the consultation of how the chess was presented, these games in this oh, series. Fantastic. So it's got all the heavy hitters from even that time period. Yeah. And then Anya Taylor-Joy is the main actress. And I thought just a, a little tidbit of trivia. So Scott Frank, who wrote and directed it all, he sent her the book because there wasn't a script yet. So she read the book first. Oh, interesting. And she said she devoured it and loved it. And then, but that was, she was already on when yeah. he got involved in it. But I thought that was very rare that you would get an actor involved. Yeah when you don't even have the script material, but it's like, this is what we're going to be basing it off of. Well, it's, it's, it's telling me that there was some, a clear vision. There was, there, mm -hmm. you know, it, I could see that being a big advantage. If you know, if you were really thriving on, on what's going on there in mm -hmm. the thematics. Yeah. Um, the production process though, even though it sounds like, wow, they got everybody together. What a dream team was a huge, I mean, it took almost 40 years to get it made. <laughs> the book came out in 83. There was interest in it then. There were scripts going left and right. And the big one was around 2008, Heath Ledger, it was going to be mm. his directorial debut. He oh, resonated man. with yeah. the material yeah. because, as we know, he's battling addiction. He was also super interested in chess, was a whiz himself yeah. at it. It had begun production. Ellen Page was going to be the oh, main man. character. That would have been and fantastic. then right before he passed away. So it was not until 2019, basically, that Netflix saved it from this development hell and got Scott Frank on it. And then the whole piece got, I don't have all the story behind how it so, got together. Yeah. But. I mean, the, the author though, so he's been trying to make it since he's put out the book, right? You know, for this entire time. Yeah. So he, and we'll get to him at the very end, but he passed away a year after the book came out. Oh gosh. So he was not involved in any of this stuff. It was oh, all his man. estate. But yeah, his, his we'll see later on his relationship okay. yeah, to yeah, movies yeah. and how it all fits together. But it, since he had passed, I think that was also maybe perhaps some of the complication of getting it done. Gotcha. Like we said, the big the big thing that gives it its credibility in the book and the movie is exciting chess sequences, which right. maybe seems like a, a misnomer <laughs> in itself. <laughs> really exhilarating <laughs> chess sequences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's true. It's absolutely true. There's a there's a sequence in the second episode where it's a completely visual sequence. There's no mm -hmm. dialogue to carry you through it, and and it's completely focused on her. What is she paying attention to? Where do, where is her focus during the game? And it's all done in, incredibly precise. Where is the camera sit? How low is it sitting? Is it looking down on her? Is mm -hmm. it looking up on the, on her opposer? Yeah, all of the it's every choice in that sequence is incredibly tuned in that yeah. that this sequence could be used as a uh, uh, taught in classes for visual storytelling yeah. as how to direct exactly what's going on with no words whatsoever. Mm -hmm. This is the work of a director and a cinematographer really sitting down and how do we present something so quiet, so simple, mm -hmm. so banal really exciting how do in just a moment do they put in your mind exactly what they want you to think and I'll also um, shout out fantastic. The, uh, 
shout out the editor, Michelle Tesoro. So she was also consulted early on in the whole process of how are we going to- Yeah, not to downplay this. the editor. This is all, takes all three of those pieces. Yeah. Up, absolutely. This this whole sequence takes all every element here and, yeah. and it's working. Yet. So, yeah. and each each of the sequences as the, I haven't seen it all, but as the show progresses, each chess match focuses on a different thing. So Scott had said to her, here's a bunch of the films I don't want it to be like, which is basically every other thing that has shown a chess <laughs> match. There's yeah. kind of already a visual language for it, but the visual focus of the matches change. So sometimes, like you said with this one, it's about the competitor's faces yes. later on in another match it's about the clock and mm. sound and everything is used to represent timing the the another one it's about the piece movement and how the pieces move around the board as oh, opposed very, to the, so each one takes on a different visual and di- and, and focusing focus. on a big a big element of what it takes to actually play mm-hmm. play the game because you can't yeah. do it all in one sequence and you were not because you're not saying anything if you're saying everything all at once but yeah. if you can take each game and make that into a concerted point of view, you can almost learn <laughs> if you're yeah. if you're taking it piece by piece if you're paying attention to what these sequences really Really are contrived around you can learn really intimate <laughs> elements exactly yeah. exactly aspects of yeah. the game yeah so i just loved one of the sequences involves all these split screen movements and the editor michelle she was saying she had taken this idea from and it's something we'd covered a long time ago but the there was a 1971 film called le mans which was the steep when we talked about uh, yes, Ford yes, Ferrari. Ford Ferrari. And this was the Steve McQueen one where he actually raced in it and the, the, yeah. the picture car beat out normal car <laughs> in the race. So there's, there's sequences in that that are all split screen and everything. And right. she said that's what she was inspired by. But then she said she watched Jojo Rabbit and she was like, God damn it, they used yes. the same thing. Yes, they did. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, they did. She had, she had had that idea before <laughs> that movie came out. So no, no, I, yeah. I, I, it's validating. So, I'm like, no, it's va- that would be I, I love that. I, that would be validating for me. I'm like, yes, they did it. Yeah. Somebody else is thinking about this. This is this is good. This is good. But not to belabor the point. We just know Bruce Pandolfini. He had come in there and given them all of the opening positions. He had come up with over 350 oh different God. chess games because of all the stuff going on in the background. Gary Kasparov also contributed just how they move the pieces. He's like, you can tell somebody who plays chess just from how they're grabbing the pieces. Like if you're playing baseball and you grab the baseball bat at the wrong angle or at the wrong place right setting up right. for spring he's oh like so gosh. he teaches them how you move when you hesitate how you write things down how you hit the clock like these are all things that are embedded in the culture of chess Ooh, that you yeah, need man. people I bet to that... tell you whether or not this is because i wouldn't know that's invaluable i, I mean that's absolutely yeah. invaluable i mean if i was an actor at just in the room as in background i would just be like whoa, whoa, whoa. just a sponge like please like anything like what yeah. And that's what I've I've come as I'm getting older. I'm just you realize that people dedicate their whole lives to to relatively so, a, a narrow thing, yeah. And they can dedicate show. their entire life to it and spend every day doing it. There's so much knowledge in every little thing. So if you mm-hmm. start to look at chess, like like uh, typical Americans would look at football or baseball, uh, there's a whole world there that just floats by your eyes. If you're and also if you're not a world pretty. from before the 1500s, like it's been around for so long, and the games have been recorded. So so it's like yeah. imagine watching a sports game, but it's like, oh, you can see exactly what they did. Yeah. So some of the other stuff in terms of the the depth of this, there are real life corollaries, even though it's a fiction book and it's not based on anything. They pulled elements from the history and culture mm. of chess and embedded it into the show. Okay. So the final match is based on a real international tournament that took place in Switzerland in 93. It was very okay. famous. The game was a draw in the actual series. It's not yeah. a draw. Somebody wins or loses. Yes. 
but they they changed it so that she finds a different move and whatever happens happens but it's based on everything up until that point is literally how they played that famous 1993 that's championship game and then see and i'm so i'm so inept when it comes to chess like i didn't even understand the idea of when you're referring to a game right. as in something a past tense game and you can replay that game yeah, and redo yeah, yeah. the moves and know exactly like i had no concept of any of that at all before mm-hmm. now yeah that's um, how you fact, would <laughs> like like i'm like oh my god they've they're using actual games and recreating games all throughout the entire the entire uh, yeah. series is historic is, is games like, that's like, a whole yeah. world that was opened up to me it was like i would have never even thought about that <laughs> yeah and so uh, there's there's a couple like you said they copy games and movements and everything but there's a particular thing that the her opponent does the way that he reacts at the end is exactly how the reaction happened against Spassky versus Bobby mm. Fischer at the 1972 really? championship in Iceland. And that was a huge event. And there's actually a whole movie dedicated to it. It's a 2015 film called Pawn Sacrifice. Toby Maguire plays Bobby Fischer. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but the way that that happened at the end and what the people actually did like character-wise is what happens at the okay. end of this. And it's great because Pandolfini, like we said, he's the master of this. He was a commentator at that championship game. Oh, like wow. He's seen more things. Oh, my God. Exactly everything what's going on. And then just in terms of Bobby Fischer, the main character, Beth, probably mostly resembles him in terms of if you could tie her personality and character quirks as a chess player to an actual person. Mm-hmm. Um, because they both win, you know, win championships, specifically one in 67, uh, began supporting themselves in their late teens. They learn Russian to compete against Soviet competitors, spend on expensive clothes at the detriment of their well-being, mm-hmm. make a living playing chess, which mm-hmm. was rare for an American at the time, and have aggressive playing styles. But I thought it was interesting because it's kind of a jab at him because he was very, very averse to women playing. He said they were terrible. He said they were not oh, smart no. in a 63 interview. And so they don't even mention him in the show. Like they mention other people as yeah. if they were in the yeah. time period, but they don't mention him almost as if she is replacing him in the history yes. of this yes. time, which I thought was pretty interesting. It's very, I was going to talk about it. It's very much a, a kind of a revisionist history almost look mm-hmm. on that things because there's, as we've covered, it's it's a lot of real things. It's a lot of influence from real people, but the actual plot and the actual character themselves are fictionalized. So mm-hmm. how is it that they took, um, th- they lied to us to tell us something more true uh, right. and, and to say other things, you know, and it's really fascinating. And that kind of work is going on all the time. And this is an interesting one um, because it really does get to take that feminist twist on it and replace a prominent figure kind yeah. of like him with a woman and say, what if? And, and because all, everything that happens in it in the series is totally plausible to a degree. So mm-hmm. it, it's this it's this nice way to flip the coin and, and look at history through another lens and and, and try to yeah. try to judge us against our own context and how comfortable are are right. we with what has happened. Yeah. So um, I looked into 
since you bring all that up, women in chess and saw some interviews with champions and grandmasters that are women and kind of their take on, because they, of course, everybody that's in oh, chess yeah. has seen this and what they say about it and just a little bit of that history and what, what is being revised yeah. for the, for the story. But just in terms of, yeah, I'd be fascinated to hear what actual women in the sport. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, okay. It's cool. You can take a, you can take a, a prominent male figure, flip it to a woman and make your own story. But now there are women in the sport. Now, how does that a lot, mm -hmm. or how does it help them? That's a really interesting argument. Yeah. So just in terms of influence in general, and then we'll go into women in chess, but eBay said there was a 273% increase in searches for chess sets 10 oh days gosh. following when this <laughs> came out. So that's one search every six seconds. Oh, Somebody man. wants to buy a chess set after the Queen's Gambit premiered on Netflix. And then you need masks, just invest in masks and chess sets. <laughs> yeah. And then chess.com, which is the largest online chess playing platform, since the Queen's Gambit was released, they set a new record for most new members in a single day, every single day of November. What? <laughs> oh my gosh. So this definitely, this show definitely contributed to the interest. Yeah. In chess. I mean, and that and that's only surprising. I'm only having that reaction because I'm just surprised that this has just been so uh, gripping for uh, mm -hmm. for people. I mean, we really thought this would be a flash in the pan and it has some big staying power. Yeah. This character seems to really really connect with people. I mean, at her, they want to see more of her. They are really interested in the character. That's the mark of of, of really getting to empathize for yeah. real with a piece of material. So this is really fascinating that this has really gripped people so much. And you know, pe people are running out to the stores, buying chess sets, they're buying them up all over the places. I mean, playing online, yeah, <laughs> yeah, playing online, losing money. <laughs> so, uh, it's yeah. just wildfire. I mean, who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> so, women in chess. The title of the thing, the queen, queen, the queen's gambit. I right. it was, it, the history of the queen. There was a shift because the queen was the weakest piece in the board. It was only allowed to move one step diagonally mm. in one direction. A trash piece. Nobody liked it. But in around 1500, specifically yeah. in Spain, there's a lot of factors, but it changed and was able to do all these other yeah, things. No, yeah, now. as I know her, she's a complete boss. So <laughs> right. that's fascinating. Right. I didn't uh, I didn't realize the game uh, rules had made it had a major shift like and that. And when when people started playing it that way and some people theorized that it had to do with Isabella the 1st reign in Spain and how much of a boss oh. she was around that time, but chess if you played it that way was called the Madwoman's chess game. Ooh, we ought to bring that back. <laughs> right, well, so it's chess just normal chess. That. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we I mean the label. I mean yeah. the the name. You don't have to change a thing. Just slap that on a box, Fisher Price. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of female chess players, the most prosperous one, and I'm definitely butchering the name in terms of how it's pronounced in Hungarian, but it's a uh, Judith Polgar is considered the best female chess player ever. Okay. Also, interestingly, it's not mentioned in the book at all, or if at least I tried to find it, but she has flaming red hair. Judith does. Oh yeah, which is a definitely a corollary with the series, yeah. at least that that she would be there. But she beat Kasparov in two thousand two when he was ranked number one. Really? So that's her claim to fame. And then she retired in two thousand fourteen. But she's the only woman to be ranked in the top ten for the overall championship. Oh um, and she said a criticism of the show was that mm -hmm. men were too nice to her. Like she's had situations where men they're were too nice to the character in the yeah show. in the show. She's like oh, wow. 
men refused to shake my hands. They were oh violent. Gosh. There was one guy who hit his head on the board after he lost. Just like whoa, okay. So, but pause real quick. Yeah, how bizarre is that? There is also so, you, yeah. this would run the risk of saying, "Oh, it's too it's it's being too political," you know, all <laughs> all that trash. But when you compare it up against the real world experience of the real women, the high, the best in the sport, yeah. they say that it doesn't even come close. Well, and that is her that is her take on it. So there's sure. Another, I mean, that, that's yeah. just one, and that's just one. But that I think that that is that interesting. That's that's a little more than just a drop in a bucket. <laughs> right. I'm she really interested the top, at yeah. the thought there. Yeah, that's yeah. really fascinating. So there was another gal just for some balance, Irina Krush, who won okay. the eighth. She won yeah. eighth at the U.S. Women's Championship just this last month. She said oh. men were very supportive when she was up and coming, and she felt included and involved well, and good, yeah. didn't have that. So there, there's a balance to it. But what cannot be denied is the disparity just in amount and yeah. involvement. You only have one so in the yeah. top ten. Look at the volume. Yeah, and current. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and at that at that being outranked. I mean, you look at something even like. Uh, like NASCAR, like there's no, mm -hmm. like the woman involvement in that sport, it, it, the, the culture the being the only woman yeah. in a major sport like that, the pressure of something like that would be immense. And, yeah. and it w even inadvertently would lead to, to some sort of pressure yeah, so, to get out. So currently only one woman ranks in the top 100 in the world. Gosh, and out of the 1700 grandmasters that exist, only 37 are women. And so, so it, we could talk about like the cause effect contribution, but the, the dearth of women at the top of the game is the reason some people would say that there are separate tournaments. So there's a whole other women's world championship, which seems when I heard this, I was like, it's not like there's yeah, an athletic that, whoa, prowess whoa, 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 that's yeah. different or just a physiology it's like difference. We, it's like women and men play different basketball games because their bodies are physically different. Right. But this is like they just are physically different and right. they do different things. Right. But the mint, the cognitive ability of sitting down to play chess, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. right. Well, that's, know. that's just in terms of the, the dearth being the reason that they're separate is it's like, well, a lot of people praise it. Cause it's like, well, there wouldn't be opportunity. Now there are more women who can get paid and do this and, and compete mm -hmm. because oh, there is yeah, it can serve as that, a huge so platform platform to yeah. propel women. So there's, uh, there's pros and cons cool, to yeah. all of it, but I just wanted to get to, and this is an interview I found with, again, sorry about the name, I don't know, I couldn't find it, Jennifer Shahad, who is a two-time U.S. champion, and she is the U.S. Chess Federation Women's Program Director. Mm -hmm. Just a little bit about her. I thought this was great. She started just this week, if you're listening to this when it comes out, oh she's starting a book club for adult women called the Mad Woman's Book Club. Yes. And you can. I'll post a link to it. You can sign up she's for it. She's bringing it back. If you're an adult woman who's interested <laughs> in this. Because some of the books that they're going to read are 18 plus in terms of content, but they're going to have a mini chess lesson and a discussion, special guests, but it either will, will evolve around chess or psychology or women's history, that kind of thing. And the first book they're reading, of course, is The Queen's Gambit. So if you wanted to get on it this week. This seems like that. this will be, I mean, it's okay. So this is a, chess was a man's world. This seems like this is going to be a huge push mm -hmm. for, for women involvement in the sport. And Her take be, on it. Incredible. And, and how, what, what she thinks about it. She started at age six and then got back into it in high school. And mm -hmm. so her thing is, she said a lot of little girls love it. Age nine is the peak for the U.S. Chess Federation, where she's the women's program director. And she said around age 12 or 13, there's a massive drop off when they get the girls interested mm. in it. And so why? And she said, it's really, 
even though it doesn't seem like it, like we're talking about boring chess, but people just standing in front of the board, sitting in front of the board. Yeah. It's really a very social, in, socially involved yeah. thing. And so in order to play at a high level, friendships within that network are important. And particularly with girls. And it's like, if you're a girl and you don't have other girls in your age range, in your city, or in the level of competition that you're playing, it's not going to be interesting. You're going to gravitate to a sport where you have 10 friends. It's like, have you ever tried to teach somebody your favorite, like first person shooter on Xbox who has never, has never (laughs) played one of those, like trying to teach somebody who's never done it before just, and they, and you want them to be equal with you so you can be challenged and mm-hmm. have you know, it, it, I could imagine that across the board yeah. would be and so it's just you know a, that would group you up you would start you know intermingling among amongst people who were at that ability level who yeah. were interested at the game at that level for sure so it's potentially a vicious cycle of like well why are there no women in there it's because there are no women in there and why don't we get them uh, in at an yeah. earlier age exactly, because there's yeah. not that many at and then it might age. not have anything particular to do with the culture but mm-hmm. then just the just the the state of it and the vicious like you're saying the vicious cycle of just the the state of it and what that leads to yeah not that anybody is particularly or or that anything is particularly toxic but that the absence doesn't lead to the the beginning of it like and at that age that's when most people start and then they continue and then they get Mm -hmm. to that level and if you don't start at that level yeah it's just fascinating that's very interesting i'm gonna ask my fiance too because she's always uh, been interested in chess she's been good at chess she's the only person that i've ever played with (laughs) um so now i'm wondering when she actually got into it and mm-hmm. what the fluctuations there were because uh yeah I, it's never been something big in my world at all but she's like the only real accessible point i have for it so yeah i ask her as we round out women in chess there was a movie that since this is a fictional account there is a story it was a disney film that came out in 2016 called queen of Katwe, and it is the mm. true story of fiona mutesi who lived in a slum in Uganda and became the woman candidate master at the World Chess Olympiads. Oh my god. And it's her story that and it's it was a, there it was I think it's based on a book also but it's it's a true story of oh, wow. this woman who rises up the ranks in the world of chess. Oh, um, fantastic. So, I'll post a link to that as well if you're interested in that, but that came out in 2016 if you wanted something that is yeah. More if you're interested, if you're interested it, yeah. in 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 chess and then maybe a women's ascension through chess, there's mm-hmm. another piece of, of of what sounds like really good material. Yeah. So now we get to the author Walter Tevis, his life, and and see maybe some of the similarities here, where this story okay. comes from with him, and then you know, like we said, forty years after it gets turned into this acclaimed Netflix show. Yeah. I, I, yeah, this I'm interested because I didn't even I wasn't aware that he had passed away. Right. You weren't aware that he passed away. Also, he was a celebrated writer in the 60s and then vanished for 17 years and then came out with this in the 80s and then died. So here's oh how oh, no. all of this fits in with his life. Just fascinating. Hopefully we'll see some of the some of the similarities yeah. here. Um, but just in terms of chess, before we get into his upbringing, he throughout his life, he got to be a class C competitor, which is the way that he described it is he can beat the average person, but he's afraid to play those guys who set up boards in the street on Broadway. Like he's not, he's not at that level, yeah. <laughs> but he knows enough. You want to get his, your ass kicked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So he has some some modesty to it. But he was born in San Francisco in 1928. He started playing chess at the age of seven. At age nine, he was diagnosed with this disease called Sydenham's chorea. And if it sounds familiar, it's that twitching spasm thing that H.P. Lovecraft had. Oh, yes. And it just, remember how it screwed up his childhood. Yes. So Walter Tevis 
was placed in a convalescent home for a year as a kid. Oh my gosh. And while he was there, his parents left him, abandoned him. So he's essentially an orphan in this hospital. This isn't like the show at all. (laughs) (laughs) And even more unlike the show, his parents moved to Lexington, Kentucky, which is exactly where Beth Harmon lives. Oh my Um, God, no way. This is where they gave him an inordinate amount of medicine as a child every oh, day. Yeah. And he developed kind of a dependency to it. Eventually, a family friend paid for his train ticket to Kentucky, and he had the rest of his childhood there with this problem that he developed from just being an orphan abandoned in a, oh in a hospital with this disease. So he's taken, he's taken our, our, our homeboy uh, chess figurehead here. And then he's taking mm-hmm. a lot of his own journey for and sure and creating a new character out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Interestingly, making that woman, making that jump to a woman character out of the two of them, taking two men and comporting it into a new woman, a new woman yeah. character. That's really fascinating. And I would call on people to like think about gender roles in, in, in narrative and what that means. Look at things like Alien, the, yeah. the Ripley character, how that Motherhood everything. And, the, yeah. Exactly. Uh, if you're changing a character from male to female, what inherently happens to that character? What are you saying about, about the mm-hmm. thematics that befall that character? Yeah. Um, because it definitely throws in a completely different lens on it and it can really, it can really charge something. But if mm-hmm. it can also be dangerous if you don't have anything to say. That's <laughs> right. the that's the great thing is that is that usually people who are smart enough to do this have know exactly the door that that opens and that's what resonates yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so his his upbringing it's interesting that you mentioned like changing different things so chess was not his you'd think oh and now he's in love with chess and plays that all the time as a kid (laughs) he did a fair amount but what he was really interested in was pool billiards Oh, cool. The green yeah. felt. So he yes. would, in, to not be home, he would hang around this pool room at the hotel that was downtown in Lexington, uh, Kentucky. Yes, and go. maybe he would play chess at night and this and that. But it was he was just fascinated with the pool hall and would be mm-hmm. there all the time. So mm-hmm. it, then age 17, World War II comes around. He enlists in the Navy and spent 17 months in Okinawa. And he was oh, on man. the USS Hamilton as well. But that's wow. where he also learned gambling as a part of that whole lifestyle. Such as a sailor. I don't- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After that, he's so young still, comes back. To yeah, the- that's all I'm yeah, thinking. Yeah. I'm like, well, I mean, that's if you're 20, you're- yeah. sure, it's World yeah. War II. Gam- gam- yeah, gamble. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he comes back to Kentucky, takes a writing course. He's, he, gets, he gets into college, and he wrote a, an assignment, which was a story about the pool hall. Um, yeah. His writing teacher is the notable A.B. Guthrie, who won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1950. So NBD. we also see <laughs> repeated God. teachers That's or great. mentors That's yes, that invest absolutely. in this. Because who would have thought this guy thus far is going to be a writer? You know, like, where does that come in? So this, really? this teacher, A.B. Guthrie, is like, this is a great story. He connects him to an agent. And that story got published in Esquire magazine. He got 350 bucks for it. Cha-ching. I mean, look at that. Boom. Out of boom. Now he's into it. So he teaches English at the high school in Lexington, still stays there, and is writing short stories, getting them published here and there. After after a few years, the agent is like, you need to flesh the thing that I liked you for into a whole big book. The pool hall story. Where is that? So he wrote that. And- there was going to be a name for it that they didn't like. The agent was like, that doesn't work because it was something about the green. And he's like, people are going to think this is about gardening. 
I instantly was like, oh, yeah, people are going to think it's about money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, you got to change. People are going to think it's about garden. <laughs> yeah. like, These agents. Yeah. So the book uh, eventually gets titled The Hustler. And that became a very famous. People are gonna thing. think it's about, <laughs> people are gonna think it's about gardening. We want them to know it's about somebody who's willing to do anything. I got it. The hustler. Yeah. Yeah. No misconceptions there. Um, but the the producer of all the King's Men bought it for film. Paul Newman was the actor in no it. No way. Got eight Oscar nominations. Won two <laughs> Oscar nominations. Book to film success. You're making stuff up now. <laughs> it's real. Um, this is amazing. He used the money to get his PhD, and now he's only 31 years old after all of this. Oh, my God. <laughs> but of course, we have the ups and downs. He took that money, moved to Mexico with his family. His next book is a sci-fi novel about this alien who ends up in Kentucky, and it's called The Man Who Fell to Earth. Very famous movie as yeah. well. David Bowie stars in it. Oh my god! As the alien, it's one of Philip K. Dick's favorite films. The more you keep speaking now, the more I'm wondering why this didn't get made when right. the novel came out. Yeah, because he's building already has a track record of and good very material diverse made, material into, you know yeah. good diverse material getting adapted into successful film and television pieces. Mm -hmm. He's there's two in the bank, and you're just. I felt like you were just getting started with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm like, how how did that not how did, well, so the, here's, how did he not get across yeah, the line? Here's kind of his his decline and all this stuff. Remember we talked about mm -hmm. the, the drugs and whatnot. So his drinking begins in Mexico. He has addictive know. tendencies. Yeah. The the world's awaiting his next book. But like I said, we wouldn't get it for nearly twenty years. Oh my gosh. He goes back to Ohio to teach English. He teaches at a university there. But he said he would drink at night play pool and chess at night. He would drink from midnight to 4 a.m. and go teach, and it was just this vicious cycle. He tried to hide his drunkenness. His family and, and marriage is not doing well. This goes on for years. Another oh, wow. merging of, of positive influences, Dan Keyes, the author of Flowers for Algernon, lived wow. there and was his friend, and they would play pool oh, wow. together. But his life is just, he's not getting there where he was before because of these addictions. He went- yeah to go on a writing thing, because now he's still trying to do a little bit of the short story, you know, article stuff. He was tasked with going to Las Vegas in 1974 to cover the National Open, this chess tournament in Las Vegas. And he was sort of re-inspired by it. He was like, hmm. oh my God, I had never seen the competitiveness, the intensity like that. He re he remembered it. Uh -huh. Like, how yeah. do we put this in? But that was a nonfiction piece. But that's, I think, the re-catalyst. But it would be the several, it'd be yeah. several years after that. But eventually he sobers up. He's now divorced and decides to move to New York City to get his writing career back on again. So two years after he moves to New York, he writes a sci-fi novel called Mockingbird, which is an allegory for alcoholism, mm. you know, drugs, dependency, yeah. pleasure, all of that stuff is bad, and family yeah. and people and friendships is good, but yeah. it's set in the future and it's just, just dystopian he's really and all working that stuff. It. He's like, he's like really working out his stuff. It is about self-discovery, yeah. And then the, yeah. the year after that, book comes out he writes the queen's gambit and that and that's all and that seems now if you're t if you're taking it back to him working through uh, 
through his own problems. That seems to be kind of given a lens back to his childhood and mm-hmm. his upbringing and try to not excuses, but to justify and, and track what happened and how and how did what a lead to B lead to C lead. To, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. It all, you know, it, it seems like a, a, a th- almost a therapeutic retracing of what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, now he's back on. The, yeah, place. he's back on the track. So after that, he wrote the sequel to The Hustler, came out the next year. The eventual, oh, wow. the eventual film Color of Money by Martin Scorsese. Paul Newman won the, his first Oscar for oh, that wow. film. So again, The Color of Money. How? <laughs> how? How? <laughs> how is yeah. he? Again, I'm, I, I, I knew it, and I knew it was going to get even more pressed. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm left at, yeah. how did he not get this made? It's just so crazy. Yeah, because- he didn't. He ended up not ever seeing that movie because eight days after the book was published, he died of lung cancer, and he was oh. fifty six. Oh my god! So then here now we have forty years later, he comes back up again with his second to last book being the thing that now you know his now all, now it's nothing but is. a certified hit. I mean, mm-hmm. it is absolutely. And so I think it's just interesting as we as we round this out. Like people, like we said at the beginning, people are looking up: is this based on a true story? And it's like right. it kind of, it kind of is. It's the, it's no, but yes, and and that and I, and this is something I think about all the time when writing anything. What can you draw from that really says something, that gets you going that 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 really gets to your heart? If whether it be from your childhood or maybe your sport hero. Uh, his childhood mm-hmm. and what 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 were the things that they faced? What were the things that you faced? Well, are you so different? If you can port that into a new person, yeah. What else do you want to say about those things that you faced that they faced? You can take so much about your real life uh, and the things that really bother you and comport them into brand new things. And I think the um, the blessing of all of it too is as we see now and even before, like the reality then bends towards the fiction the other way. So in terms of the pool stuff with the the pool room in The Hustler mm-hmm. was the only one he'd been to in his life. But now most pool rooms look like the way he described it and the way that the movie <laughs> presented. And even the character, he invented the character Minnesota Fats. And there was a guy who was a famous pool player who called himself Minnesota Fats after oh seeing gosh. The Hustler and convinced people that the character was based on him. But oh Walter gosh. Tevis denied it. And I think it's the same way with this. It's like now a yes. lot of people are getting interested in chess yes. Yes. because of him yeah, talking about it. We're getting chess. to the where she's going to be real. Beth Harmon <laughs> right. will be, you know, she will be made true. It, yeah. it, 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 it's don't get too siloed and thinking <laughs> that you don't you don't exist in this world and, and you can't touch it because mm-hmm. you whatever you put out there, some sometimes, man, it gets mirrored back to you 40 times more intense than you ever expect. Or 40 I years mean, later. Insane. Yeah. 40 exactly down the road, maybe beyond your life. You have no idea. That's yeah. wild. That's I just thought it was such incredible. a cool story, especially considering it's like here's this weird Netflix miniseries that has come about, and there is so much to how it all fits together. So I, I I hope that's inspiring for anybody trying to be creative, do do some writing out there. Is that you know this is it's is it true? Not exactly, but it came from somewhere. Yeah. Thank you, Taylor. This was great. Um, fantastic. Check us out on Instagram at AlliteratePod on Instagram. Please let us know what you are watching, what you're reading, what you're interested in. Um, you never know when we'll when we'll do an episode on it. Um, And we will talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye.